Heidelberg Catechism. Who, who knows anything about the history of the Heidelberg Catechism? Who knows more than, yeah, that's great. Kate said she read the back of the book. See, she's a step ahead of you guys. The back of the book has a little thing there. Who knows more than this about this? Uh, Heidelberg Catechism is one of what are called the three forms of unity. And what's interesting about the Heidelberg Catechism is that anybody paid any attention to it whatsoever. It's like sometimes when we talk about hymns and we pick up our hymnal and we say, oh, look at all these old hymns that somebody put in here. And the reality is what we have in our hymnal is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the hymns that were written. We have the best hymns. We have carefully selected hymns. We have hymns that have stood the test of time, doctrinally and musically. And believe it or not, the same is true of the Heidelberg Catechism. There were a lot of creeds and catechisms and confessions that were writ over, written over the years, especially in this period of time. When we talk about the Heidelberg is from 1563. So when we talk about the Reformation era of the church, where uh, Protestantism is recognizing the theological errors of Catholicism and saying, no, we the church have strayed from the Bible. We need to reestablish ourselves on biblical truth. Well, you better believe that was a time where a ton of creeds and catechisms and confessions got written. Because when you ask the question, well, what did the church get wrong when referring to the Catholic church? You're starting to write a catechism when you answer that question. Some of us grew up in traditions. I know some of us in this room, kids, some of your parents grew up in churches where they would say things like, no creed but Christ. We don't need any catechism. We don't need any fancy confession. We have Jesus and we have our Bible and we don't need anything above that. And on one level, that sounds pretty good because you think, well, you don't want to add a bunch of human, not infallible words, not of the spirit words to God's word. And on one hand, that's good because the Bible is the ultimate authority. But on the other hand, you find yourself in a bit of a pickle because if you say something like, what does the Bible say about sin? Well, anything you say besides quoting a Bible verse is a creed or a catechism. And if I asked you to tell me everything the Bible says about sin and you're only allowed to use Bible verses, how long are we going to be here? The Bible has a lot of verses about sin, doesn't it? And so you need creeds and catechisms and confessions. Everybody has them. Everyone who is a Christian has a creed. They have, if they said, I believe, and then they were going to fill in the paper after that, Whatever they put on that paper is their creed. And even if they only put Bible verses, it's still their creed because they're deciding what verses to include on that paper and what verses to leave out. What are the most important Bible verses, so to speak? That's a creed. Everybody has a creed. A lot of people don't write them down. And in the Reformation era, they really did write them down. <laughs> they wrote down a lot of them. And the Heidelberg is one of them. It's, why is it called the Heidelberg? What is Heidelberg besides a catechism? City. A city in what country? It's a city in Germany. So a long time ago, in 16th century, in Germany, 
Germany had one ruler, but Germany was divided up into a bunch of prefects. So it'd be like we have states and all states have governors. Germany was divided up into sections and all of those sections had rulers, except those rulers had much cooler names than governors. Those rulers got called things like electoral palatinate. And the electoral palatinate of the uh, area where Heidelberg was is the one who commissioned the Heidelberg Catechism and said, I want to have a catechism. I want to write down the answers to what do we believe so that, and then we'll get to that in a minute, sort of why does the catechism exist. But this uh, Frederick III, who was the equivalent of the governor, he commissioned this catechism and he said, let's take all of the professors at the University of Heidelberg and let's take all of the pastors and the leaders of the church and let's put them in a room and let's get them to come up with a catechism. Now, what happened when they got that group together, some of you may know the, the story and history of the Westminster Confession and catechisms, for example, where the Westminster divines, that assembly of people got together and they met for a very long time and they had debates and hashed out every single sentence and it was votes over this wording or that wording and it was this really dramatic, uh, glorious event where the Westminster cate uh, Confession and, and catechisms come together. Heidelberg was a little bit different. All of these leaders of the church and these professors of the University of Heidelberg get together in the room to write this catechism that, has been that Frederick III has commissioned. And there's a guy in the room, uh, Zacharias Ursinus. And, Z and Ursinus says, uh, hey, hey, you guys looking for a catechism? Yeah, I already wrote one of those a couple weeks ago. And everybody's like, who in the world? Well, turns out he did. He had already written a catechism in the last six months. And so they started with that as their source text, and they changed very, very little. It was a very good catechism. And what happened in Germany at that time, remember in Europe, there are constant back and forth battles, sometimes wars, sometimes just political battles of Catholic versus Protestant. And depending on whether the ruler was a Catholic or a Protestant, you were not allowed to be one or the other. And whenever a new ruler would take over, if they were changing it from Catholic to Protestant or Protestant to Catholic, they would make a bunch of new rules and laws, and they would try to write down a lot of new creeds or catechisms to enforce the fact that this was going to be the one true religion of the state. That had just happened in Germany not long before this, where they had gone from Catholic to Protestant, except that the main stream of Protestantism in Germany was what? Well, let's work backwards. Who was the main force of the Protestant Reformation in Germany? You know his name, Martin Luther. So what was the dominant form of Protestantism in Germany after the Protestant Reformation? Lutheran. Well, wait a minute. The Heidelberg Catechism doesn't have Lutheran doctrine. It has reformed Calvinistic doctrine. Well, what happened was this Frederick III is really eager 
to make Protestantism stick in Germany and to beat back any future turning back toward Catholicism. And so he brings in all the Protestants. He brings, he's already surrounded by a bunch of Lutherans, but he also brings in a bunch of Zwinglians. Does anybody know kind of where Zwingli ended up in the denominational words we use today? We know that Luther goes with Lutheranism. We know that Calvin goes with Reformed churches. Anybody guess where Zwingli? Baptists. Zwingli is where most of our Baptist brothers and sisters would trace their Reformation heritage. And so Frederick III, surrounded by Lutherans, but he really wants to make this Protestantism stick. So he elevates to positions of authority in the university and in the local churches, Zwinglians and Calvinists, people who believe that doctrine. And so over time, he's getting advice and the area that he rules is being influenced by all these different types of Protestants. And then because the Calvinists were right, they win. That sounds funny, but it it actually is pretty much what happened. Over time, as the more doctrinal disputes took place, there is so much overlap in what we believe. When you take the Zwinglian, this is destructored. When you take Zwinglian sort of Baptist theology that we would say, oh, no, that's not me. And then you would take uh, Luther and Lutheran theology. You'd say, well, we're not Lutherans. And you'd say, all right, Calvin and Reformed theology. Yay. Here's the thing, you guys, is these concentric circles, (laughs) right? I. We, that's a horrible way to draw that. Like, <laughs> I don't like any of you. Kids, this is the first thing you'll learn about my Sunday school class. My drawings are the best. You cheer for my drawing. They're good. We have so much in common, you guys. We have so much in common. And today... People seem to go to one extreme or the other. They either go to an extreme that says, we are reformed Calvinists, Lutherans are dead wrong about blah, 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 blah. The Baptists couldn't be more wrong about such and such and such and such. And we are just so different from them. But, and then there's this other poll of, look, you know, we agree on so much. The things that we disagree on don't even matter at all. Why do we even talk about them? Well, neither one of those is right. We can say that in these streams of church history, in these streams of of theological understanding, there are a ton of things we have in common. And that for all who affirm the Apostles' Creed in faith, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's great. In that sense, the church is big. The, the, The kingdom of God is big. It's expansive. And we can say, yeah, but we do have some disagreements about what the Bible teaches about some specific things. Those differences matter. They don't matter in terms of heaven or hell matter. They matter in terms of practicing our faith, walking with Christ, living faithfully under the command of his word, worshiping well together in spirit and in truth, honoring God with our lives and with our worship. They matter. 
And so we can talk about them. And we should want to find what's the truth. We shouldn't want to defend any particular stream of church history. We should want to defend the truth, what the Bible actually says, and that those things do matter for our lives. So Frederick III commissions this catechism. He brings together all these people. Turns out one of them had already written a catechism. And uh, they make some edits, they discuss, they look at scripture and see where is this true and where could we tighten up this language. And then Frederick himself writes a preface to the catechism and it's published to the people. And we have the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563. It's also important, this is a little more for the adults, but kids, you may have heard at some point of the Council of Trent. It's also really important to understand where things fall historically. And the Heidelberg Catechism falls right after the Council of Trent, which is where Roman Catholics, the church, in response to the Protestant Reformation, they said, wow, we've got some things we need to clean up and some things we need to look at. And the Protestant Reformation was about doctrine, but it was also about morality. There are a lot of corrupt priests and popes. There were priests and popes that were murdering people. There were priests and popes that were having multiple children out of wedlock. There was a moral calamity in the Catholic Church in the 15th and 16th century and before. And when the Protestant Reformation came along, it's not that they agreed with the Protestant Reformation, but it did cause them to do a little bit of reflection. What of these accusations are true? And the Catholic Church, to their credit, in the next couple of centuries, they really would clean up a lot of the moral problems. They really would sort of get rid of the ungodly, power-hungry uh, priests that had brought all of this false, uh, uh, rep- all this rep- uh, poor repute on the church. But when the Catholic Church considered the Protestant Reformation from a theological perspective, And they said, well, let's look at the accusations that Luther and others are making about our doctrine being wrong. They did not say, we agree with Luther. They actually doubled down and said, nope, we're right, you're wrong, doctrinally. And where they did that most explicitly was at the Council of Trent, where they said, all the Protestants are going to hell. I I think that's a fair paraphrase. Your doctrine is so bad, and you are so corrupt, Protestants, none of you are in the kingdom of heaven. I thought, well, them some fighting words. So Heidelberg and the catechisms of a similar time aren't just on the heels of the Protestant Reformation. Hey, we need to clarify what scripture says. They're also on the heels of the Council of Trent where the Roman Catholic Church says, we've looked at the scriptures and we think all of this stuff that you're saying is completely wrong and not based on scripture and you people are not in the kingdom of heaven. And so the Heidelberg Catechism and others like it came along and said, we really need to go back to the scriptures and make sure we're sure about what we think we're sure about. And that is the valuable exercise for us. The Heidelberg Catechism will have a lot of uses in our lives. The Apostles' Creed. What are some of the ways that we use the Apostles' Creed? Affirming what we believe. 
We affirm what we believe. We use it individually, and we use it corporately, together, to affirm what we believe. What are some other ways we use the Apostles' Creed? To, to bring clarity. So we actually use it for church membership. The first question of a potential church member, not the first question, but you know what I mean, is, hey, here's the Apostles' Creed. If you believe this, we might be the right kind of group for you. But if you look at this and say, I don't think any of that is true, a Christian church is probably not what you're looking for. Right? Lots of uses of creeds and catechisms and confessions. And one of them for us is we're a little more likely to admit we disagree with the Heidelberg Catechism than with Scripture. When we read Scripture, we feel some sort of, of weight, some, some sort of obligation to at least not say out loud, I think this is wrong. <laughs> but when you're reading the Heidelberg Catechism, Suddenly you feel this great permission to look at it and say, I don't know about that, which is actually a really great thing to do because then you can go from there to scripture and say, should I agree with this? Is this what scripture teaches or is the catechism wrong? So creeds and catechisms, because in our brain, we file them away as these were written by men not under the perfect power of the Holy Spirit, we give ourselves this permission to say, I don't know. And that's really, really good. That's part of the reason why we use it in the lives of all of our children in the Sunday schools here, is what better way to give a child freedom to say, I don't know if I believe this. And then, okay, we can go and see where in the Bible does this come from? What more does the Bible say about this? And then we can wrestle together with the scriptures and not just wrestle together with the Heidelberg Catechism. So that's one of the ways that we can use it. Paul, yep. Back to your point earlier, it's also true that when we read scripture, we immediately impute a meaning to the verse that may or may not be true, which is writing our own catechism in the moment. Yep. And so having a summation of that allows you to argue against that instead of us just coming up with our own interpretation for every verse because we would all come up with what we want that verse to say. I was going to spell Bible wrong for just a second, you guys. I'm just, I'm just going to be honest with you. I got to the L, and I got really confused. What should our reading relationship be between the Heidelberg and the Bible? Is it that we read the Heidelberg and it drives us to the Bible? Is it that we read the Bible and it drives us to the Heidelberg? Yes. Yes is the right answer. It's exactly what it should be. The Heidelberg Catechism, and I'm going to work this is a Heidelberg class. All, creed, all faithful creeds and catechisms are, and confessions are in this category. But the Heidelberg Catechism can help us understand Scripture better. Aren't there times where you read a passage in one of Paul's letters and you think, I'm not sure I understand what he's talking about. Or you read something in James and you say, well, I, that's true, but how do you reconcile that with this other thing that Paul said about the same issue that sounds different? The Heidelberg Catechism can help you with those things. 
Yes, here's what we're saying about faith. Here's what we're saying about works. Here's what we're saying about grace. And so it is a, it's a relationship where we go back and forth. What is most important is that when one disagrees with the other, what would win? It's not a trick question. If there were disagreement, the Bible would win. The great comfort and protection for us is that this catechism wasn't written 12 days ago by some fly-by-night theology student or some part-time pastor in Dunwoody who thinks he got the Bible right. This catechism has stood the test of time for 450-plus years of thoughtful men and women going through this exercise of catechism, Bible, Bible, catechism, and saying, it does agree with the scriptures. Yes, it is a trustworthy and reliable summary and guide for the meaning of the scriptures. And so that's the value of the Heidelberg there. Now, I've said several times there were a lot of creeds and catechisms and confessions that were written in this period. And so a natural question is, why was this one adopted in countries all over the world? Why did this one sort of rise to the top and gain such wide acceptance? There are lots of other ones that were, throw away the ones that were false, all right, some of them proved not to be reliable summaries of the scripture, but there were others that are reliable summaries of the scripture why did Heidelberg take off? There's a historical reason, and I think there's a literary reason. The historical reason is that the Protestants who adopted the Heidelberg, the German and early Dutch Protestants, got scattered everywhere. They, they didn't just stay where they were. Because of the religious wars and the persecution, they scattered. And they took it with them. <laughs> and so whatever they took with them, if it's true, is going to stand the test of time. I also think, and this is the reason why we use it as a church, most, many churches in our position, let me say that a different way. Basically, all churches that believe what we believe use the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. Many of those churches also use the Heidelberg Catechism. All the Presbyterian denominations, all the Reformed Christian denominations accept the Heidelberg Catechism and believe that this is a really helpful and useful thing. But when we planted this church, we picked it as the one instead of, for example, the Westminster Confession. And I think we did that for the same reason why the Heidelberg took off and was so widely accepted. When you, those of you who've read the Catechism, describe it. What are the words that come to mind? Pastoral. It doesn't read like a theology textbook. I'm not saying it's easy. The doctrines in here are not simple. But when they wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, and we'll talk about the organization and the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism uh, next, uh, 
when you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, it starts with a powerful opening paragraph on the doctrine of Scripture, because the whole thing's going to be based on Scripture. And when you read uh, the Apostles' Creed, it starts with a clear articulation of God, of the Trinity. And that's, that's powerful. That's theologically gripping. Kids, what's the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism? What is your only comfort in life and in death? One time when I was a graduate student, I was in a hard situation emotionally, just dealing with some family and outside family things, just having a really bad day. And my roommate, I'd sent him an email to ask him to pray for me. Here are a couple things. And he just emailed me back and said, praying for you right now. And then he had question one and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. And it brought me to tears. I later realized it was actually his email signature. He hadn't sent it specially to me. It had gone to everybody he sent an email to. But I want you to imagine you're, you're in a, a hard place emotionally. There are difficult things happening around you, and there's a lot of uncertainty. You don't know how this is going to turn out. And someone asks you, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And you turn to them and say that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that would be enough. <laughs> you think, boy, you know what? That's not just my only comfort. That is ultimate comfort. That I am not my own. And body and soul belong to Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from the power of the devil. Remember when Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can cast you into hell. And so my comfort is that his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and redeem me from all the power of the devil. And so preserve me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. That without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. I don't know what's going to happen in this next situation. I, I don't know how things are going to turn out. This could be really bad for me. But you know what I do know? That without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. Why does that matter? Well, because you could say everything I just said prior to that and still say, yeah, but I'm just the guy to screw that up. God could do all this stuff and I'm just the guy to screw it up because it depends on me holding it together, having enough faith, being obedient enough, being strong enough, and I'm going to mess it up because that's what I do. And we say, nope. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life 
and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. What should I do in this situation? Honor God. I should ask, what do I do here that glorifies God? What is the next thing I can do to walk in faithfulness? Because I don't have to worry about the step after that, because without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair will fall from my head. You want to know why I think the Heidelberg Catechism rose to the top? I think it's question one. I really do. I think for theological purposes and the deep study of God's word, the Heidelberg Catechism is very valuable. But I think it is that immediate meeting us where we are in insecurity and uncertainty and fear and doubt and shame and speaking to every one of those things in the first question. And then we say, all right, well, what else does this thing have to say? That's pretty good. And when you read through there, there are uh, little footnotes that have the scriptures that these things are based on. And in general, this is one of those places where I'm not going to nitpick on words. In general, you would want to call these source texts, not proof texts. Proof text makes it sound like some sort of gotcha. Where I'm going to go find this one verse and it's, well, no, the whole point of the catechism is that there are lots of things in the Bible that one verse doesn't have the answer. That it's the bringing together of eight verses. It's the bringing together of the whole story of scripture. And so what the catechism will have with these little footnotes are the source texts. Where in the Bible is that idea from? Where could I go in the Bible to read more about how that is true and what God says there. And, I mean, this is a good example. Question two. This part of the page is the question and answer. Everything else you see are the source texts. Uh, We don't have creeds and catechisms so that we don't have to read our Bibles. We have creeds and catechisms so that we read our Bibles more effectively. And so that we can bring together uh, in summary form what Scripture teaches. What, what questions about... Uh, uh, my seminary historian would laugh me out of the room for my history of the Heidelberg Catechism, but I wanted to hit the high points. What questions do you have about the, the history and the coming about of the Heidelberg Catechism? Yeah, that exciting, huh? I just a comment, one other point you touched on a little bit was like if somebody comes to you new new believer what do you guys believe depending on that depending on that makes it a little bit yep. easier to say <laughs> yep um and and when somebody asks you what do you believe you owe them some sort of prioritization in that answer too don't you I mean, I believe that we should sing psalms in corporate worship. But when somebody asks you, what do you believe? That's probably not in the first three things that I'm going to mention. (laughs) I don't think that's the answer they're looking for. And the catechism organizes things in a way where what's, you put first things first. You know what's most important as you read it. Casper Olivanius. History has since proven that he was 
in that big group of people that I mentioned that wrote the Heidelberg Catechism, older scholarship thought that he was heavily involved, and then over time, uh, it's been proven out that he wasn't more involved than anybody else. Yeah, it's really, if you go back and you read um, the, the Zacharias Ursinus Catechism that he wrote prior to this, there's like 75% overlap with Heidelberg. That's why modern scholarship is so sure that he's the primary author of it. The language just lines up perfectly. There's also a fun version. It's not, it's not called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's called the Orthodox Catechism that the Baptists adopted in the 19th century. And they said, we're going to write a catechism on Baptist theology. And they took the Heidelberg they erased the chapter on infant baptism, wrote a new chapter on believer's baptism, and stamped it as finished. And that's called the Orthodox Catechism. And it's delightful because for all except that one paragraph, it is exactly Heidelberg. Uh, they just wanted to change the, the baptism part, which I'm not picking on Baptists for that. Presbyterians did exactly the same thing with the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are multiple versions of the Westminster Confession of Faith, depending on which denomination you were in. And the only things that really got changed were the civil magistrate, how we view the government chapter. Uh, there's, there's nothing particularly odd about that. Baptists have, uh, Reformed Baptists in particular, have tend to, tended to fall back on um, the Baptists, what do they call faith it? And faith and message, and the, what year matters. So the Baptist faith and message is kind of their Westminster. It has been revised over the years, and for Reformed Baptists, they will be very quick to tell you what year of the faith and message they subscribe to. It's the faith and message is the SBC, the London Baptist London Baptist it's Confession, the, yeah. It's basically Westminster with the parts about infant baptism ripped out. Like it's, it's very similar to the Westminster Confession. Yeah, when you meet Reformed Baptists, they'll say London Baptist Confession. They'll give a year, 1689 or something, and that's their way of telling you that they're in the cool kid club and not in the, <laughs> not in the modern Baptist club. Yeah, we, all, we all have our, our theological geekery. Structure of the Heidelberg Catechism. Well, let's talk about purpose first. I told you that Frederick wrote a preface to the original Heidelberg Catechism. So Frederick III commissions this document. They create it. They bring it back to him. Here you go, ready for publishing. And he writes a preface. And the preface is really helpful because we don't have to guess why Frederick III wanted this catechism and what he expected it to be used for. He told us himself in the preface. He said, we have prepared and compiled a concise booklet of instruction of our Christian religion extracted from the word of God. This was done so that in the future, not only will our young people be instructed in the Christian doctrine in a godly manner and admo admonished in unanimity, but also so that pastors and school teachers themselves will have a reliable model and a solid standard. So let's unpack that for a minute. Y'all ever heard the story about the young woman who was baking, uh, was, uh, was making the roast for Christmas dinner, and relatives are over in the kitchen helping her, and the first step of preparing this roast is that she cuts it in half, and she puts it in two pans, and then has to do all the work separately, and then cooks the roast, and then her sister-in-law says to her, I gotta ask you, why... Why do you cut the roast in half and put it in two pans? 
And she says, well, that's what my mother did. And so they go and they find her mother and her mother says, well, I, I don't know. It's what my mother did. So they go find her mother and they say, why do you, why is it so important in this recipe that you cut the roast in half and you do it in the two pans? And the grandmother looks at him and says, I never had a pan big enough to fit it. <laughs> Over time, people forget why we do things. We forget why something matters. We forget why something is important. So the Heidelberg Catechism, some, some will say, was written for the instruction of children. We need a, a systematic way that we can give this curriculum to our Sunday school teachers and to parents and that they will teach their children theology and it will be correct. It will be good. They'll have a good starting place to work from. You know how intimidating it is as a parent when you feel guilty from some conference you went to and you're like, well, I got to teach my kids something from the Bible. And you come home and you open the Bible and you're like, I'm supposed to teach this? No. The, the idea of having kind of a curriculum that people could teach children, that's absolutely true. That's the purpose of the Heidelberg Catechism. But if you stop there, you didn't read the rest of what Frederick said. Because he said in subsequent generations, the adults, the teachers, the professors, the pastors, it gets lost. If you don't study it, if you don't keep it front and center, if you don't constantly examine what you believe, book, and why you believe it, it gets lost. How many times have you been in a conversation with somebody, kids, you've done this too, you're talking about something about the Bible, something about church, and they'll say, I think we believe. And you just that little bit of hesitation. I don't know. I heard, uh, what was I watching? Oh, of course it was Twitter. Nothing good happens on Twitter. Um, the new husband and wife pastor team at Saddleback were doing a video answering questions that people chat in. And the question to the so-called pastors of this church is, if a homosexual couple gets married and then become Christians, should they stay married or get divorced? Because God hates divorce. So that was the question. And the two pastors go on for two and a half minutes and their answer is I don't know their answer was I don't know their answer was you should ask the Holy Spirit to tell you what to do to which all I could think was maybe they did and the Holy Spirit told them to ask their pastor <laughs> if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it everything gets more difficult and so one of the great advantages of the Heidelberg Catechism is this opportunity I, whether it's me or anybody else in that pulpit, we can't preach every doctrine in the Bible over the course of a year. You'll go through your whole life in the church and I bet you won't hear all 66 books preached. It's, how will you keep out in front of yourself the reminders of what Scripture says about the most important things. How will you, uh, what does the New Testament say about being ready, being prepared to give an answer for the hope you have within you? Well, that's not easy. Some people aren't quick talkers on their feet. Y'all know I can make anything up and go on for half an hour if you need me to fill some time. That's, God's gifted me with the, that gift of gab. Some of you are very thoughtful about the words you use. That's a good thing. 
how will you have an answer when somebody says, what does it mean it's faith only? What does it mean that, well, the Heidelberg, it at least gives you a great starting point. There's a story, I don't know whether it's true or, or apocryphal, that in the midst of World War I, two men are walking down the street, and the, one of them's a journalist, and so he's the one who wrote this later. And he says, I'm walking through this throng of people, and everyone is panicking. Everyone is panicking. There are bombs falling. We're in the middle of the war. Everyone is insecure. Everyone is scared. Everyone is panicking. And he says, as I walked through the crowd, I saw a man whose face was at perfect rest, perfect calmness and peace. And he said, I walked by him, and then I quickly turned. And I said, you there. What do you think he said at that point? <laughs> what is your only comfort in life and in death? This is the Heidelberg class, Matt. Heidelberg. He said, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And according to the story, the guy answered him. He spit it out immediately. And his response was, I knew a Heidelberg man when I saw one. It, and it, it's, I don't know whether it's true or not. It doesn't really matter. What matters is it could be true, right? What, what matters is that's the effect that this certainty of belief can have in us. Would you rather go through life unsure and insecure about what the Bible says and what God says is true and what you should actually believe, or would you rather have some answers? And even for those who won't come to the Christian faith, if you're going to reject what the God of the universe said is true, you should at least know what he said. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Other questions on that front? Last thing, just structure as we prepare to go through it. Does anybody know, kids, do any of y'all know, what is the threefold structure? There are three giant sections of the Heidelberg Catechism. Does anybody know what they are? <laughs> Misery. Redemption. Redemption. What are these teachers teaching you? Gratitude. All right, thankfulness. I guess you can't have Mr. <laughs> Ms. Come on, y'all. <laughs> Teaching's hard. <laughs> misery, redemption, gratitude. Kids, what do we mean by misery? Does scripture want us to be miserable? Sunday school class is miserable? What's the misery? Nathan? Our sin. Our miserable condition is what it's talking about. And so the, the misery of man section of the catechism talks about the fall and our natural condition the original sin into which we're born as a result of that fall. And the misery section talks about one other thing. What's the other thing in the misery section? The law. Because apart from redemption, the law is death. There is nothing worse than seeing an obligation that you know you cannot meet. There is nothing worse than seeing the perfect law of God and knowing I can't even come close. And so apart from redemption, the law is part of that misery as well. 
How many Lord's Day? So the, the Heidelberg Catechism, Grown Ups, is divided into 52 weeks because it's meant to be taught over 52 Sundays in a year. So you should be happy that I'm just doing 13. Uh, of the 52 weeks, how many of them are spent in the misery section? Does anybody know? Three. Days two, three, and four. There's your misery section. <laughs> All right, redemption or the deliverance of man. That's Lord's Day 5 to Lord's Day 31. This talks about the need for a redeemer, that we cannot save ourselves. And if you have doubts, go back to the misery section. That we need a redeemer. And if you have doubts, go back to the misery section. Uh, It talks about the importance of faith, how faith is the only thing that can save us. When it talks about faith, what does it do? What does the Heidelberg Catechism use to explain the faith which saves? The Apostles' Creed. It just works through the Apostles' Creed. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to believe the words of the Apostles' Creed by faith that only God can give. And then it talks about justification. It talks about the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then it talks about the marks of a true church, what, uh, what Jesus called the keys to the kingdom in the New Testament, which are uh, the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. And then last, the gratitude due from man. What does a person who has been saved, justified, redeemed from their miserable state through no work of their own, how does that person respond to God? Thankfulness. So that's conversion. And then talking about how we respond to God, not in our own strength, but in his strength. Then what does the Heidelberg Catechism use to teach us how to walk with God? Lord's Prayer is second. Ten Commandments are first. We go back to the law. We go back to the law. Because now we look at the law with fresh eyes. Now we can look at the law in a very different way. In the misery section, the law was our condemnation. We could not keep it. We could not be saved by it. Now we're redeemed in Christ. We don't need to be saved by the law. And so the law becomes the way that we walk with God in gratitude. And the Heidelberg Catechism finishes up with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. And that's what we'll do together. We're not obviously going to go through all the questions, but here's your homework. We need to take 12 weeks left. We've got 52 Lord's Days in the, in the Catechism. 51, because we just did the first one. Somebody do 12 divided by 51. That's four-ish, four plus. Every week... You need to read the next five Heidelberg questions and answers. It's available free on the internet. There's books on the table. There's classroom books everywhere. Every week of this Sunday school, I need you to read the next five questions and answers from the Heidelberg because I'm going to come with about 20 minutes of lesson prepared. And the rest of the class is going to be talking through the parts that you have questions about that you thought were interesting or you thought were confusing, or sometimes there will be ones, and the kids know this from their study, sometimes there'll be ones where you read the thing and you think, well, that's true. And you read the Bible verse, the source text, and you say, that's true. And I don't think they have anything to do with one another. How in the world did we get from here to there? 
and we'll have that conversation too. So for next week, read two through seven-ish, uh, and then come prepared to talk about, to ask questions about ones that you think are interesting or you have questions about.